Und jetzt eine ganz besondere Präsentation von Hörspiel Revival. Ich werde mit dem irischen Dramatiker Gareth Stack sprechen und die erste Folge seines fantastischen Hörspiels, die Mauer im Kopf, spielen. Kommt sofort auf Hörspiel Revival. Hello and thank you for sticking with me through that German intro. I apologize for any native speakers whom I've offended with my accent. Let's take another run at that, but in English. Welcome to Radio Drama Revival. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Join me as we explore the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. Today, we're going to journey back, back into the troubled history of East Berlin in an English-language production called The Wall in the Mind, a simmering psychological thriller by Irish dramatist Gareth Stack. Claire O'Hanlon, a university instructor in present-day Ireland, makes her way back to Berlin after a mysterious tape from her past surfaces. She had fallen in with some radicals in the DDR, the Deutsche Demokratische Republik, and spent some months as a detainee of the Stasi, the East German secret police. Claire seeks out her one-time lover, Emil Reichmann, in an attempt to discover what became of him after the wall fell in 1989. In her investigation, she comes up against the wall in the mind, die Mauer im Kopf, the divisions between Eastern and Western Germans, the resistance to talking about pre-unification memories, and the secrets her own mind has been keeping from her. This piece is unsettling. It fits right into our Shocktober selections, and so allow me to issue these content warnings. This piece contains instances of gaslighting and state-sanctioned violence. This miniseries is one of the best things I've heard all year. I'm so excited to share it with you. After we play the feature, I'll talk to series writer and director Gareth Stack. But that's enough preamble. Sit back, relax, if you can, and enjoy episode one of The Wall in the Mind. The past didn't go anywhere. The Wall in the Mind, episode one. The past didn't go anywhere. Emil, what are you doing? You'll be arrested. Come on, we have to go. It's going to explode. You promised we'd leave if things got out of control. Yes. Keep play safe, will you? Emil, come back here, you idiot. Let me through. I'm with Noise Forum. Help me up. Tonight marks 40 years of the Deutsche Demokratische Republik. For three quarters of that time, we have been confined. Kept apart from friends and family, locked behind a wall, tied down by barbed wire. We have been kept quiet, and we have been kept afraid. But tonight things are changing. We call on Herr Honecker to reopen our borders, to tear down this barrier which has divided this city for a generation. You, get down there! Get away from me! Come away, Claire. The right squad is going to storm the place. We can't go. They've taken him. We have to help him, Matthias. There is no time. Come on. He can take care of himself. Back. Get back. Everyone to switch him to the get some anacursia. I see him. But they've taken him, Matthias. There. Wait. Get off me. Let me go. Emil. Look them in the van. Oh, 
Wake up, Duff. You're having one of your nightmares. Come on, shake it off. I thought someone was in the apartment. Oh, no, it's just me. Not you. Someone. Go back to sleep. It's still dark outside. For God's sake, it's like 5 a.m. Do you ever notice, Stuart? You don't age all at once. One day, you look in a mirror and you're puffy and ragged. And you think, I look ancient. Next day, you're back to being yourself. Can yourself be someone who goes back to sleep? It was just a hangover. A trick of the light. Maybe the first stages of flu. But then, over time, you start to look like that more and more. Sickly. Then one day, that's just how you are. Come here, I'm having a cigarette. You tell yourself, if I could only lose a little weight... If I could find the right skin cream or stay out of the sun, maybe, I'd look like that again. Like that photo from college or from a friend's wedding when you thought, my God, they're crazy. What are they doing? Don't they know they're only kids? Then you've got a shrunken head staring back at you like some kind of voodoo fetish. And it's how you look now. Well, my little voodoo doll, I think you look more beautiful now than... Don't, Stuart. I'm not in the mood. Come on, go back to bed. We've hours left on the alarm. Have you taken your tabbies? You go. I'm going to stay up and get some marking done. No, no, sure, I'm up now. I'll get the tea. said the weather would be better than the dock. Now that's not exactly what I said. Colder winters, warmer summers. I believe that's what I told you. Come on now, you're not even dressed. You know we have an appointment with Principal Richter at half three. I need you to have all these clothes out of the boxes and neatly packed away before we leave. I'm not going anywhere. Are you still feeling poorly? What's the point? I'm not going to learn anything in a year. You should just let me stay at home and do the leaving. Claire, we've gone over this. It's not open for discussion. You're going to go to a good school in Berlin and then you're going to take the Arbiter next spring, then you're going to college and that's the end of it. Ja, wohl, mein Führer. Drop the attitude, Claire. It won't fly over here. You cannot, I repeat, cannot say things like that in Germany, even as a joke. Yeah, no kidding. Because they're all bloody Nazis. (laughs) I will not let you humiliate me. I dropped everything to come here. I turned down professional opportunities. I left my job, my friends behind to come here where I know no one. For you. For you, Claire. I can't believe you just hit me. 
I'll not let you throw all that back in my face like an ungrateful brat. You can't just slap me. I'm not a child anymore. Then start acting like it. I left my friends too. It's easy for you. You can do what you want. I didn't ask to come here. You made me come. You didn't leave us with much of a choice now, did you? We didn't have to. We, we could have... You know as well as I do why we had to, Claire O'Hanlon. Now unpack and get dressed. I want us out of here in half an hour. Dad would never have let you do this. Your father would have been ashamed of you. Do you hear me? You're a disgrace. I'm glad he's not been around to see how you've acted this past year like a cheap... A what, ma'am? Go on, say it. I will not let you manipulate me into making you the victim. You are not a martyr. You're a spoiled little cow and you need to start taking some responsibility for your decisions. Or what? You're right. You're 17 years old. It won't be long till you won't have anyone to clean up after your mistakes. You won't have Mammy to airlift you away from your problems. And you screw up your life like the little idiot you are. You'll only have yourself to blame. I hate you. Jesus wept. Now unpack and get fecking dressed. And I don't hear one more word about how hard it is for you because you didn't get what you want. Understood? Half an hour, Claire. You hear me? Well, how are the little horrors today? First year psychology? Illiterate. I swear, those kids sound like they spend more time tweeting than studying. Coffee? No, tea's grand. What did we do? I can't actually remember. Instead of college work? Mm Mm-hmm. We got cabbaged on rubbish skunk and went to shocking grunge gigs and if I remember correctly every once in a while when we could afford it we got absolutely (laughs) hammered sounds more fun than Facebook doesn't it speaking of fun why don't we go away this weekend yeah sure Stuart let's do something whatever you like yeah but let's do it though we always say we will be sure I can't remember the last time any mail ah the usual mostly stuff for you Fluff, conference tickets, publication notices, funding applications. Mm. This one is odd. Looks like a German postmark, handwritten address. Claire, you got a secret admirer? Show me that. Ah, Is that a cassette tape? Jesus, you know, I can't remember the last time I saw one of them. Can you even buy them anymore? We don't have a way to play it. Of course we do. The stereo's ancient. Come on. No, wait. I don't know if I... How do we know what's on it? Ah, Claire, this isn't the ring. We're not going to summon a demon. Come on. I'll pop it in here and give it a listen to you, huh? Claire! 
Komm doch, mag her und hilf mir. Was machst du da? Du bist doch verrückt. Wann das Emil sieht? Emil glaubt an die direkte und unumwobene Vorgehensweise, wenn es darum geht, einen politischen Wandel zu erlangen. Are you okay, Claire? No. That's not right. Claire. What, what is it? You're scaring me. Play it. What is he talking about? Just play it for God's sake, okay. Stuart. Emil, what are you doing? Matthias, your friend's a lunatic. Come on, I want to go back to the cafe. Come down, Emil. Your girlfriend is getting bored. Claire, these hoardings have no right to be here. They're knifing their way into our mental landscape. I don't know. I think they're quaint. Much cuter than the ones at Kudam. Quaint? Imagine if a dictator put these up. Imagine every country in every modern city, his lieutenants looking down. We would all line up to graffiti their sneering faces. These advertisements get worse every year. More persuasive. We're like the lobster in the pot. We don't even realize we're boiling. You mean the frog? Maybe in the West you eat frog. In Berlin we prefer lobster. I heard a story at the museum at Checkpoint Charlie. They said that when they rescued people, the refugees didn't even realize they were in the West. Not until they drove them through Kufristendam and saw the adverts for Coke and Levi's. Claire. East, West. It's all made up. What about our right to respond? To speak back in the language that screams at us from the hoardings. Oh, not this again. Do you literally have to grandstand every time you climb something? These adverts say, We are poor. We're ugly. We're not as good as the people in the pictures. They say, Ask your mother for this. Cry and you will get that. Wear these jeans and girls will like you. <laughs> Where's our chance to respond? We can only listen and obey. Emi, <laughs> mein Freund. People don't follow orders because they're alone or because they lack imagination. We follow them because it's just too hard to figure out what to do all the time. It's hard not to appear foolish. Look at yourself right now. <laughs> Two years of psychology and Matthias has human nature all figured out. Emil still believes the world is made up of invisible political forces battling until the end of time. Enough politics. Time for you boys to get me drunk. Come on, let's go back to the cafe. Nonsense. You have to see my place. It's just near here. Aren't we very close to the wall? This is where all the action is. <coughs> so, you decided to run away from Mama and Papa and come slumber with us ussies for a while. Mom's an absolute nightmare. All she cares about is what people think. Yes, Mother is a Western journalist. She's doing some stuff for Die Welt. She actually thought it would be safer to come to Berlin than stay at home in Dundalk. The engine of capitalist propaganda. Impressive. Think she could write an article for us? SOS, please help. Our country is falling apart. Yeah, if I ever talk to her again. She'd run away from home, little girl. Straight into the arms of the big bad wolf. Gulter's just jealous. He's uh, always wanted a Western girl to impress with his radical credentials. And what about you, Emil? Tell me, what are you going to do to blow my tiny Irish mind? It might take more than ripping down a few posters. <laughs> well, I like her. Does she bite as hard as she barks? Uh, let's leave these lovebirds alone for a while. Come on. I got a lead on a kick as a bottom department. Oh, you go, Matthias. I'm not going anywhere. I have customers calling. Let me think. I think I have something that might impress you. We have a pretty nice parade coming up next week. I mean, you're not going, are you? With things the way they are, the army? It'd be crazy. Claire, we are all going. We have to. This is our country. Fine. 
then I'm going with you. Welcome aboard Dane Air Flight FR8558 from Dublin to Berlin Schönefeld. Please take your seats and ensure all electronic devices are switched to the off-position. These short all flights never have any business class. No Wi-Fi. Mm, no champagne. Chair is about as comfortable now as child seats in the car. Do you know, I don't think they're even serving any in-flight din-dins. Mm-hmm. I'm still looking forward to it, though. You can show me around all your old haunts. Stuart, it's 25 years ago. I doubt any of my old haunts even exist. I mean, East Berlin isn't a place anymore. Sure can't be all that different. I mean, Dublin in the 80s. You'd still have lilies, fibbers, the hole in the wall. Yeah, Irish pubs, time machines of no hope. Oh, Claire, don't be like that. Now, listen, we're having a nice trip. Do you really need now to be... Is that what you think this is, Stuart? Excuse me. Excuse me. You know perfectly well that yes, I... Yes, sir. Could I have a Jemison now to start? I'm sorry, sir. We can't serve beverages until we've reached cruising altitude. Jesus, Stuart. Very good. Uh, Never mind. Do you really think that's why we're travelling? A little jaunt to rekindle the flames? I know that you're eager to. That's to say, I know you want to deal with your issues. You can't say it, can you? Keep your voice down, will you? Oh yeah, God help us both if someone thought I was hysterical. I was reading that there's an island full of museums that you can visit. Did you get to see that now when you were here? Egyptian museums, art museums and all the rest. An island full of museums. Yeah, yeah. Hang on, I printed it out. I think I have it here now with the check-in stuff. You know what, Stuart? I always admired the fact that you gave me space not to talk about the past. Feckin' anyway. I printed it out. Directions and all. Seatbelts. Seatbelts, please. Now what I really think is you were just happy to live with somebody who couldn't stand talking about themselves. Claire, I'm just afraid that you'll get wound up and you'll end up hurting yourself. Oh, I'm not listening. God forbid if you talk to me like a real person. I'm trying to talk to you like a grown-up. Yeah, would you rather I shrivel up and rot away feeling nothing, saying nothing? Claire, you sound like you're not in your right mind at all. <gasps> An astute psychological evaluation, Stuart. Mm. Yeah, maybe I am losing it. Maybe I'm going to walk over by that hatch on my way to the bathroom and mm, maybe just blow us all out into the sky. Claire, the people are going to hear you. Forget it, Stuart. I'm taking an ambient. Ah, for feck's sake, Claire. German, please. Shut your mouth. Where are you taking us? You are a spy and a traitor. We're taking you to the rubbish dump. We will see how the Nazis used to do that. Then you will wish you would have stayed in the West. Out, out, out! Where are we? Male's right, female's left. Remove your belts and your shoelaces. Against the wall. I'm a foreigner. I'm not German. My mother is... Shut your mouth. <laughs> Stretch out your arms and your legs. You are number 1422. Take off your clothes. My name is Claire O'Hanlon. 1422. Shut up. If you speak again, you will be beaten. 1422. Follow me. Eyes down.
1422. Ordinarily, you would not meet me until much later, but things are moving very quickly at the moment. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and I want you to answer them truthfully and rapidly. Do you understand? If you do not understand, I can have a translator brought. I understand. Please. Excellent. 1422. Tell me, are you familiar with a student radical named Emil Reichmann? I've never heard of him. That is a lie. Is Emil here? Please don't hurt him. If you lie to me again, I will know. Each time you do so, there will be a punishment. I don't understand, please. Matthäus Meyer. Rudolf Sudermann. Emil Reichmann. Would you like me to continue? Stop it! We have a number of your friends in custody, and the rest will be with us by tomorrow. As you are not a daddy as citizen, your punishment will not rest solely on you. Each time you lie to me, I will pick up this phone, and one of your friends will be beaten. Do you understand me? Do you understand me? I understand. What are you doing? I've agreed, haven't I? You lied to me once already, 1422. You have agreed to this arrangement. If I did not carry out my promises, how could we trust one another? You don't have to do this. Just let me go home. Matthäus Meyer. Hello, Matthäus. Claire, are you all... No. No, I don't know anything. I'll tell you anything you want. Please don't hurt him. I'll ask again. Are you familiar with a student radical named Emil Reichmann? You know I am. State the circumstances of your meeting. Uh, I don't know. Um, we met on the street, I think. I'm confused. Please just let me think. I, I met his sister, Magdalena, first. She was handing out leaflets in Alexanderplatz. Political pamphlets? No, no. She was just advertising her gig, I swear. She plays for a new wave band. Gulag dolls. I don't know. I, I think so. And when did you first become romantically involved with Emil Reichmann? Um, why does this matter? Please remember our arrangement. Okay, all right. It was shortly afterward. I met Emil at Magdalena's gig, and he took me home. And you lived in his apartment from that point, correct? He had space. I mean, the apartment was empty before Emil moved in. It belonged to someone who had... Someone who escaped to the West? I think so. Where is Emil Reichmann now? I don't know. Please, I'm telling the truth. I don't know. I saw him being arrested. He was arrested before I was. I thought maybe he was here. Magdalena Reichmann. No. And that was The Wall and the Mind, Episode 1. We'll be right back after this quick break. We're back, folks, and I'm so glad because it's time for our feature interview with Gareth Stack. As you'll hear me say, Gareth is no stranger to Radio Drama Revival. We've played his work here before. Join me as he and I discuss casting, love, loss, the surveillance state, and so much more. Gareth Stack, welcome back to Radio Drama Revival. Thank you very much. Um, so you've been you've been interviewed on the show before. We've played two of your pieces. We played Choices uh, in 2015, and then the year prior we played Any Other Dublin. Um, 
and in interviews and online elsewhere, you've described yourself as primarily um, a, a comedy director, a comedy writer. <laughs> I think I used uh, you've to done be, a yeah. lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've, you've done. You're still active in improv, right? Yeah, actually, I'm just back from the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Believe it or not, um, how was that? Amazing. I wish I'd done it years ago. Um, I went over with this very kind of new group that I've been involved with the last year called Tickle by Freaks. Mm-hmm. And um, we did just four dates. A friend of ours had a had a run of his comedy show and he gave us the last couple of days to do four gigs. In, and it was amazing. I would recommend everyone go over and uh, it's way less intimidating than you think. It's a really welcoming. It's a lot easier than doing comedy in Dublin, believe it or not. That's That's really surprising to me. I would have always assumed that The Fringe was terrifying to get involved with me too me too i mean year, years ago i used to do a lot of stand-up and i always thought you know one day when i'm good enough i'll go to the, and actually the standard is is you know it's it's good but it's not you know it's not so good that you couldn't perform there and the people are very welcoming especially if you're doing a free show people are really willing to give you their time and the oh, audience is yeah seemed really friendly so it was great I, I it's a it's a wonderful place to perform and it's the most beautiful city ever so it's just great everyone should go there i will put it on the list <laughs> With that in mind, where I, I know where you got the inspiration for Wall on the Mind, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But where where did you decide that you were going to make such a like a chilling, intense drama? Um, that's a good good question. Well, I, I, you know, I guess honestly, I got quite um, I wouldn't say jaded with doing comedy, but it, it mm-hmm. started to wear me down. I I, I kind of started as a writer writing more serious fiction. And I then had a period of writer's block for a few years. And when I was in college, I made friends with this really funny guy called Andrew Booth, who um, was editor of the Satire Magazine College. And he sort of got me back into writing. So comedy was this way for me to write my way out of not being able to write, you know. Um, But I sort of at a certain point, I was like, I want to do something which is more emotional and more meaningful to me. Um, Yeah. So it's just and, and that's. That's where I wanted, I, and I, I've been writing lots of other things that weren't comedy. So I wanted to do something on the radio, and honestly, it's a lot harder on radio to do something that isn't comedy because you know comedy forgives a multitude of sins in terms of sound effects, quality, and broadness of tone and stuff like that. So to do something more serious is, in some ways, a lot more difficult. And I kind of wanted to do that. I wanted to do something that I was like really proud of, and that was I don't know that I could be like this is something that. I, I, if I heard it, I would like it. And sometimes I feel like when I do comedy stuff, I'm like, yeah, I like it because I made it, but I'm not sure if I would like it if I was anyone else. So. Mm-hmm. I have, I have that problem too. Like, I don't know. It's so hard to distance yourself yeah. from a joke that you wrote yourself. Right, right. And especially with, with what we do, um, it's such a niche thing, you know, that you don't know if like people are listening to it just because it's what they listen to or if they would mm-hmm. actually like it if they were to stumble upon it in the kind of general world outside. I was curious about, because you were talking about how difficult it was to cast people for Wall in the Mind. And I think <laughs> you succeeded. You have an incredible cast. Um, but there just isn't a ton of interest in radio acting in Ireland. Mm. Um, to what extent is there, because I know uh, in in the United Kingdom, there's still like a really vibrant culture of, because this is something we come across in the U.S. too, right? That that people are are really surprised by the idea that there is still audio fiction productions going on. Um, it does seem like BAI funds things. Like, there is no public commissioning yeah. system in the United States anymore for radio drama. What's what's the ecosystem look like? 
Well, well. So this kind of I'll just to, to get to the first part of your question first. About I mean, we we sure. made it really difficult and on ourselves, or I I did to cast <laughs> this. So it's set in Germany, obviously, and I wanted it to be as authentic as possible. And because it's a kind of very realist tone, I didn't want people being sort of Jawohl, mein Kommandant accents, you know. So we had to have real Germans, and there's obviously a limited supply of German actors, so that was one difficulty. And I I also very very much wanted people who were actors first rather than being voice actors per se um and 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 i feel like i feel like oftentimes with with quote-unquote voice actors they're very used to a way of working which is they turn up they get given a script and then they do a very good job um giving you distinctive character and often they're expected to do like say three or four characters um but maybe it's not the deepest dramatically you know it's more as like broad and it's it's energetic but it's not and they really don't want to rehearse you know and so i i was like yeah so for this project i really wanted everyone to be off book like it was a, like it was a player or a movie in other words like learn the script and have worked on the characters and for, um and, and so sort of radio drama actors were out so once we had those restrictions in mind add to the fact that it's it's on radio so actors know that they're that while they might be getting paid they're not going to get a huge amount of exposure compared to like a tv show or even an ad so that made it like much more difficult we still had a lot of people we auditioned maybe i think 60 people for the roles um but versus like the guy who i was auditioning with is a theater director and he was astonished he was like every time i do a play i get hundreds of people i can't believe how few people you're getting for a paid job and i was like well there's no exposure so that's the thing so the second part of what you said yeah there is funding here and there is uh although radio drama is far less common like most of what people make is is doc you know and drama would be like 10 percent of it maybe and most of it is I will, maybe not the best. I don't want to, you know. I, I, I think I think the stuff done in the states tends to be a lot better, um, just m- kind of more contemporary and stuff. So I- I- in a way, it's like the money is sort of. It's not very much money, you know. So even though there is funding, uh, it's not like there's a lot of people doing it as a job. Job. So it's more like the funding is like a, a nice little bit of icing on the cake for somebody who's going to be doing it anyway. So it's not. It's not like it creates a thorough breeding ground for young dramatic talent to be making stuff on the radio. And often when stuff is put on the radio, it's like someone saw a play and they liked the play a lot on stage. So like, oh, let's put it on the radio. And that's a that's really a terrible idea. But that tends to happen a lot. So, yeah. <laughs> I want to come back to auditioning with James, but um, before that, I want to pull back to you talking about the documentary work that the BIA also funds, because that's where this project began, right? Was with mad scientists of, uh, of music. Oh, you really have done your research. <laughs> I have, I'm afraid. Um, yeah. So, so let's, let's, so you were interviewing you and Henley who did the music for Wall in the Mind. Mm-hmm. And he told you a story about Teufelsberg, which uh, is a location that plays a pivotal role later in um in the story in wall in the mind uh, can you tell can you tell me the sto- can you tell the the listeners the story that ewan told you oh i'd be glad to um it, w- it was fantastic actually i was up so ewan is this very kind of well-known um composer of electronic and experimental music and in the 90s he had a lot of quite successful records and in, in the early 2000s but he's now actually kind of completely retired since we made the wall in the mind he, he no longer makes mm-hmm. any music so i kind of caught him right at the end yeah of his music what, career what are the two names he makes music under for um, for wall in the mind yeah so herve is h-u-r-v that's his original kind of uh, older stuff and zpg would be his newer analog synthesizer uh, improvised stuff um, whereas Herb is more like classic electronic compositions and stuff, and uh, so I was I, I was doing this 
uh, quite long documentary it took me about a year to make about Irish experimental music and that was like that was where the funding really came in great because I was able to travel over to England to interview a bunch of people including Ewan and Ewan is just a totally eccentric character you know he lives in Brighton he has this little artistic community around him of other musicians and artists that have moved over there kind of almost to be near him or to live in the same milieu and they make music and and he makes sculpture as well he's a really cool guy so he he took me hiking is his other passion and he took me hiking up in the the south downs above Brighton and uh, he told me all these incredible stories about UFOs and about making music and about his life growing up and he was just so happy to be talking to someone because you know uh, the kind of music he makes while it's I think it's amazing and really avant-garde it's not super commercial so he's not you know he's not he's not often gets he doesn't often get the chance to talk about it and one of the stories he told me was about um, living when he was a student in, in Berlin in Germany and hiking up in the hills above Berlin and finding this crazy old military base called Teufelsberg that I don't think at the time he even really knew what it was but what it, what it really was was a, a CIA listening post during the Cold War where they used to spy on um, all of the radio transmissions from from Russia and the, the and, and can block. we just gloss for the listeners what Teufelsberg means in English? Uh, Devil's Mountain <laughs> so I've been told my German's pretty rusty but that's apparently what it means um, and it's uh, yeah it's a, it's a crazy place I've, I've been there since um, partly to get sound for the for the wall in the mind and partly just to see the place and it's it's really eerie um, it looms over this forest called the Grunwald outside of um, Berlin and it, you know, it's weird when I was when I was up there, the guy giving me the tour said that the locals don't talk about it. They won't mention it. So if you say, oh, I'm going to Teufelsberg, they'll be like, where? I don't know that place. <laughs> There's still condition not to, you know, from the Cold War. You don't mention it. We don't mention Teufelsberg. It's a secret, you know. Sure. So that 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 leads me into my next my next line of questions here. So you've got a psych degree. You studied psychology at Trinity College Dublin. You've taken more psychotherapy and counseling courses since. Um I want to talk to you about the psychology of the wall and the mind. And to begin with that, I'd like to talk about, like, what Die Mala im Kopf actually is. Like, how does German society deal with the story of partition? Like, what does what does Teufelsberg and them not talking about it represent? Well, that's a, that's a really big question, David. Well, we've got some time. <laughs> um so okay, so I want to preface anything I'm going to say, but, but I'm not a German, you know, and I'm not I'm not um, an academic with any kind of specialization in in the study of Germany or anything like that. So there are assumptions that I make in what I read and what I what I think that are probably wrong. But my impression is that certainly for a long time after the wall came down, um, this idea of the wall and the mind or die Mauer im Kampf uh, persisted. So and to this day, there's still a. a quite a big distinction societally in Germany especially amongst people who were alive when the wall was up and are still alive now so people in their in their 40s and older um, between Aussies from the from the east and and people from the the west because you know the western Germany was culturally western Europe and eastern Germany was obviously in the Soviet bloc for you know a long time and that distinction um, has led to all sorts of interesting things whereby um, there's a fetishization almost amongst a lot of people who used to live in what, what was East Berlin for the culture, for the architecture, for the fact that they had social welfare, for what they what they perceive as missing in the kind of modern neoliberal era. And in there was a kind of condescension of that amongst people from the West who thought they were coming in to save these people from communism and there's also I think a lot of people miss the liminal state between when, when the Berlin Wall fell and kind of modern Germany. There was like 
15 maybe even uh 20 years where berlin was this really crazy experimental place especially in the 90s right after the wall fell and a lot of people missed that time some of the actors actually from from the program who were alive and, and living in germany at that time speak of the freedom and the strangeness and the experimental uh uh, sort of aura of that time and 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 that's a sort of a thing that's lost now because germany and especially berlin is really commercial it's a modern I mean, germany is like the most powerful economic block in in europe and that thing of a free living free crazy city is gone uh where, where east and west met you know and people experimented with new ways of living because yeah, the actor who plays mateus uh, sven right sven moritz um, yeah yeah, Sven Moritz was only fourteen or so when the when the wall fell, so he has pretty concrete memories of that time. Yeah, he's he's a really interesting guy. He um he he told me sort of all about uh, seeing the wall come down, and and he, to him, East Berlin, where he was growing up, he was so young that it was sort of he didn't see any of the flaws of the system. He just saw kind of a, a well kept. A coherent country which was maybe not the most glamorous but he was happy and he was well schooled and then suddenly everything in his life changed um but he as yeah he's very fond of that time in germany when it seemed like uh, it was a really berlin was a really artistic surprising place um and you had all of these artists communes and strange uh projects going on and you also had all these former stasi guys still there and it was like a yeah, it was like lots of times meeting, you know, lots of the past and, and the present meeting in almost like a cyberpunk kind of a way, you know. So an ocean and a continent away where I live. So I live on the West Coast of the United States. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. And there are two things that immediately come to mind when I think about how the fall of the Berlin Wall is interpreted in this region. Uh, because right outside the Mountain View Public Library, and I live in Mountain View, California, which is where Google is. And we can get to that when I start talking about surveillance with you later. Um, right outside the Mountain View Public Library, there is this chunk of the Berlin Wall that is glassed in. It's just like this little monument. Um, and it's like this chunk that says, Wir lieben dich, which I think means we love you, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and the plaque, and this was just like such a a weird, to me, grotesque reading of history. Uh, I wasn't, uh, that that attributed the agency of tearing down the wall to, like, Reaganite-induced hope from the Americas <laughs> that, like, inspired inspired East Germans to, to protest. Mm. Um, so that's, that's, one, that's one interpretation. And then in <laughs> San Francisco itself, there's this East German restaurant called the Waldswerk, which is, I think, the sort of restaurant that Mateus would have started if he emigrated to the United States. Right, right. Um, because it's it's full of all this, like, DDR kitsch, uh, and, like, the, the, the food is delicious, and it's served on mismatched plates, and everything's kind of like this gross yellowish green on the interior. Um, and the lighting's weird, and it's on purpose. It's, like, with love. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a word for that in German actually, nostalgie. You know, nostalgia for the East. <laughs> sure. Which, which there's a lot of cynicism about it, but it's a real thing. You know, the aesthetics of fascism are always, uh, or totalitarianism are always incredibly wonderful. Um, you know, look just look at North Korea today and how kitsch that is. You know, they're trying to currently resuscitate Pyongyang, and it's even the newer version of the buildings are even more ridiculous and kitsch. So, um, so I, I I can I can see the the appeal of that. Yeah, like I say, especially for for someone who lived there. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think totalitarianism has a kind of majestic quality to it that makes it feel, I mean, that's that's why it, it's all traffics and symbols of power, right? Right, yeah. So it, it's iconic deliberately. It's like designed, those symbols are designed to move vast bodies of people to do great things like have wars or or build enormous uh, monolithic buildings and they still have that power and it, when they become kind of de, uh, deracinated of their power they only they, it only enhances their kitsch you know it only makes them more kind of glamorous in a cheesy way or whatever um so Matthäus and gunter represent two different visions of berlin mm. can we can we talk about that and how how the the fall of the wall and the reunification and the the dissolution of the Soviet Empire changed how people felt about the city and what the city could be. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and this is something that I'm kind of chuffed with because, like I said, I've no special knowledge of Germany, but I sort of intuited, I intuited that schism from my my one visit to Germany that I've ever had and thing of things I read and then it was confirmed. But by we should actors. say that you gave the the German cast members ample opportunity to correct any misconceptions with right. the script. Right. And but but then they were they were super helpful and came up with a lot especially with the language and and, and uh, ways of talking and locations and stuff. But I, I, I seem to have glommed onto this idea which is basically that uh, there are some people in Germany, especially in Berlin who have uh, a longing for the past and for especially the equality of the past. So East Berlin, East Germany and East Berlin for all of its bad side, like it was constantly economically depressed and there was obviously not, there was no freedom of speech and all sorts of things like if anybody sees the lives of others and things like that, there was lots of exploitation. The Stasi were awful, but it really did have, um, for example, women were, were had, had a much stronger role in society Um uh, gay people could be out uh, there were even sex clubs and uh, things like that so yeah there's all these were interesting contradictions so um so is that is that part of how angela merkel got <laughs> to be where she was because she was raised in the east right yeah she was in the communist party she was an apparitionic so she was already in a uh, politician before the wall came down absolutely so she just like vladimir putin um she she's a retainee from from the old era of of uh of, of pre uh, or cold war politics rather um, so it's kind of interesting that these people are still around and just wearing new masks, you know. But yeah, there is this thing, and in, in the in as you say in the in the show, Gunter is basically somebody who's wholeheartedly embraced uh, neoliberalism. He's like a businessman. He's a developer. He's he's he loves the dot com culture, and you can picture him sort of even though he's in his sort of late forties or whatever, you can picture him going off and uh, and doing uh, pills on the weekend and probably having sex in the Kit Kat Club or something like this. Whereas Matthias literally lives in a commune, and and that's a sort of a dying thing, you know. There were all these not communes. just a commune, but a commune in a squat. Yeah, yeah. But that squat, that squat culture um, was very, very real and and bigger in Berlin than really anywhere else in in Europe for many years after the fall of the wall, because there were just so many buildings that were empty. Berlin is a city that was built for 60 million people. Hitler envisioned it to be the capital of a new empire. And of course, obviously, he he, he didn't win. So the population was never, you know, up to the scale of the city. Plus, it was depressed for a long time. So there was no property valuation. Plus, the east was, the buildings were so run down. And add all those factors together, you had a lot of empty properties. So there was this huge squatting culture. And it really boomed and it gave people an opportunity to live in all these ways that sort of, we imagine sort of that stuff ended in the 60s or maybe the early 70s. But in Berlin, it was really going on to the 2000s. And it's only literally in the last two or three years that the last squats have been raided into extinction. And I think maybe there's one or two left. But as is portrayed in the drama, that's a real thing. The police have 
harassed and raided all of the big squats. And when you, when you say squat, you know, we imagine something maybe if you live in the United States or in the UK, you imagine something like a, a you know, four or five hippies living in someone's house that, that they kind of snuck into. But squats in Berlin are huge block sized uh, communities with with their own schools and medical treatment and everything. So it's a whole different thing. Yeah, in the in the drama, Mateus shows off this like CNC. Uh, oh, what do you call that machine? The CNC machine. Like it's a cutter, right? It's some yeah. kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For making bicycles out of scrap metal. Yeah, um, I thought that was awesome. That was a great detail. <laughs> you know, and a lot of that comes out of. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned it anywhere, but I was um, I was involved in a place in Dublin called Exchange Dublin for a few years, which was a very utopian art community with. Um, we didn't quite have a CNC machine, but we had people making physical things. We had a 3D printer and we had free art classes and free dance classes. And there were people from the transgender community and people from the homeless community and also fine artists and all, all collaborating. And that was actually kind of shut down by the council in Dublin about three years ago. So, so I strongly empathize with this desire for utopia and the kind of tragedy of trying to build utopia amidst what we have today which is um, a society which is very intolerant of anything that can be commodified so I wouldn't quite I'm not necessarily Mateus but I'm probably more on his side than than Gunter sort of embraced the savage uh, brutality of, of, of corporate capitalist ideology or whatever I think I think Mateus is perhaps a little I think Gunter is too flexible <laughs> in his in his adoption of neoliberal principles but perhaps Mateus is too inflexible mm-hmm yeah, and that's, you know, deliberate. I, I guess every character is a caricature in a way because otherwise, you know, they'd be more real than the person writing them. But I, I, I guess I was trying to understand how people could adapt because no one, no one chooses the, the society that they, that, they're, that they live in. And in a way, we're all time travelers, you know, because things change so much in our lifetimes, especially now. So how do we adapt to that? Do we choose to cling on to the past or construct an identity from, from the clothes uh, that we grew up wearing or, or other cultures? Or do we sort of say, I'm a person of today and whatever today brings, I will, uh, you know, both are kind of fake, both are uh, inauthentic, but, you know, pick your inauthenticity, I guess, you know. I'm, I'm no psychologist, right? But I, I could definitely tell that you had done a lot of research on post-traumatic stress and what happens to a person when they're interrogated and tortured. Like, the the most uh, illuminating moment for me is when you know, they keep Claire in the dark. The Stasi keep Claire mm-hmm. in the dark in 1989. And when they turn on the lights to interrogate her, she screams and begs for darkness again. Um, mm-hmm. h- how did you do research for that part of the story? You know, <laughs> I'm pretty lazy. Um, as, a, as a writer, I really I try to write from from feeling because it's really easy to get lost especially a big project you know like a novel or a series it's really easy to get lost in detail and to lose the the feeling that you're ultimately as i feel like the job of any artist or one of the biggest jobs is you have a reaction to something in the world that makes you feel something something overwhelming because you're oversensitive um and then you have to capture that and make it into a thing that transmits that, that feeling back out and so you know, honestly, I didn't do a whole a lot of research. Um, I, I did see a, a few documentaries and I went to the Stasi Museum and I read a couple of books about life under the Stasi. But in terms of the trauma, um, there was a documentary I watched actually as a child, I remember, about people um, uh, in captivity 
um i I don't even know if it was the the stasi but it kept there was this guy talking about being kept and being forced to keep his hands up outside of the sheets of his bed so that he wasn't going to kill himself so every 15 minutes or every five minutes someone would come open the little window look in and make sure his hands were outside of the windows and outside of his sheets and if they couldn't see his hands they would scream at him to take his hands out and if he didn't or he was asleep they would come in and beat him and he talked about how when he was in the outside world many years later he would wake up at night and his hands would be up beside his face and I just I I really feel like I can empathize with that you know and I can understand how quickly we accommodate to survive and find a sort of peaceful space in awful circumstances um so yeah I think that's where I came at it from and 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 like I say I read I read some books on it um there's a great book called Stasiland that that's probably quite it's quite a popular book and uh but 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 mostly it was operating just from instinct because I, I don't know I feel like it's easy to imagine suffering maybe easier than than happiness I just want to say the actors on this project were the best actors that I've ever worked with especially the two Claire's um there obviously there's a younger Claire and an older Claire uh, Mia Gallagher and Jasmine Leeson and you know um I remember in the audition um Mia cried and or I always get this mixed up I think actually yeah Jasmine cried in the audition and Mia made me cry and I was like well you know these two actresses are incredible and those are the part because they're Irish act they're Irish characters so those are the parts that we had lots and lots and lots of people to audition for and it was like spoiled for choice and they were I mean both of them are incredible Mia's actually a novelist as well um quite a renowned novelist and um and 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 just to their performances made it real so you know all the stuff that we did around the sound environment and stuff to heighten the emotion of it and balance it with the realism and all the rest of it um is all it would be nothing except for the fact that they went i remember so that the prison scenes um where claire is being held in the dark we literally had um jasmine in a dark room um with the door shut and we kind of left her alone and we did that over and over and over again but there were sound problems and so on so so we had to record it maybe for two hours three hours just and and she was in this state of deep emotional trauma for that entire time and i remember to, to my eternal shame when i finally came to take her out i i, I I'm, I'm i'm a real jerk at times i opened the door and i took a photo immediately of her and she is there i have this photo of her just looking so sad and I felt so terrible of course I immediately Instagrammed it you know but um, it was a real betrayal of the artistic process <laughs> but uh but it, but yeah so she really went there you know and really internally she wasn't trying to seem sad she was um she was feeling that she was she was in that place and and uh, as an actress that was a, such a brave thing for her to do and especially for something like this I, I I really think people don't that kind of acting is very rare on radio um, it's, it kind of goes against the aesthetic that most people are going for, you know. Um, so so you've, yeah. you've said that studio recording is to radio as green screen is to cinema. Uh, do you want to do you want to expand on that in the context of this location shooting of like putting Jasmine in a closed dark room? Yeah, yeah. So, so okay. So, on the one hand, it might seem ridiculous, right? You can, you can because you say, okay, well, you're only hearing it, and surely you could, you know, you can foley or you can use sound libraries, and you know, it's acting, dear boy, as um, was famously said to Dustin Hoffman when he was uh, getting all sweaty before a, a violent scene on the set of Marathon Man, you know, um, by by Olivier, I think. Uh, why not just do it? But the truth is that when you look at a a, a play 
or, or even a film a better a good film the process that actors go through before when they're preparing for a role is re- it's a really intensive one of trying to find who this character is how they can personally emotionally relate to it what of the how they can reach that state once sort of when they're reading it or rehearsing it and then capture it again uh, when you're recording and all of that goes out the window if you're just turning up at a studio and reading from a piece of paper and I've done lots of studio recordings and I'll do them again unfortunately uh, they're t- they're more economical for a whole bunch of reasons um, but I, I would prefer never to do them I think they're for, for a comedy it's different because if you've got a bunch of comedians and you're riffing it doesn't really matter but for something where you're trying to do something real and dramatic uh, I don't you can't fake that obviously everything is fake right film is fake tv is fake but you have to give the actors a space in which they can they can feel that it's real um, and it doesn't mean like blindfolding them tossing them into a van and scaring the living shit out of them it it, it, it means giving them a space where they're comfortable uh, and have enough time and have a uh, have a surrounding that they can convince themselves is real to some extent and if you do all those things it's amazing how much better the performances are and of course it lets you do all the other cool stuff of having sound which is you know real and as a lazy person you know building a sound environment where you already have some real sound is you know it's a whole different thing it's 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 you're enhancing what's already there and it lets you you're spending your time playing with mood you know rather than being like okay now i need my car in the background effect now i need my street atmos now i need my you have all that right and 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 in the moment of listening to it when you're actually recording it you can be like this is not giving me the sense that i want let's let's move over here let's go underneath these trees let's so even though we obviously didn't go to germany we went to as many different like each of the distinct locations is a physically distinct location we went to as many different places as we could um in a way it was sort of like one of the things i learned on this on this project was that directing is as much about the illusion that you create on the set as it is the illusion that you create you know in the final thing because you're trying to convince all the actors that it's really important and it's a big deal and that it means something and part of that is like carting them around the place and you know making them feel like they're part of something and that it's a and and again like that's that's something that i learned from uh, james o'connor who plays emil who's a very very good director when he's not acting and he's sort of he's a theater director and he was like when you're this the the process starts when you're auditioning so i had my sister pretend to work for me and when we were auditioning people she went out and she would meet them at the door and myself and james were sitting kind of wearing suits and she would bring them into a lobby and they would wait and then we would bring them in one by one and we'd talk to them very seriously about the project and it was all a piece of theater to convince them that it was you know that not that it's not serious thing but um to sort of create to create the the feeling that this was important and i sort of feel like that's the director sort of has to keep doing that maybe i mean a really good director would still be doing it in the interview but i'm, I'm letting you know all the secrets now so um, for me the whole story of this you know aside from the locations and the inspiration what what the whole thing is really about what i can what i connect to is the idea of being frozen in time so when Stuart meets claire she is a person who is absolutely frozen and isn't living because her whole life kind of ended with what happened when she was a teenager in Berlin and what the whole drama to me is about is about someone coming to defrost and finally coming to terms with what happened and 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 the only way you can do that the only way you can move on is to be right back in it so she's sort of regressing so he's seeing her kind of acting in all these ways that are to him totally out of character and, and and insane and to her all it is is she is starting to be a person again 
it's kind of like they, they you know i had a, a gay friend of mine tell me once that um when you come out of the closet no matter what age you are uh, it's like you're a teenager again because even though you yeah, you might have had relationships you might have been married to a woman or whatever it was all sort of pretend and then as soon as it becomes real you start acting in all these really adolescent ways because your real emotions are involved and i feel like that's what it's like for clary she's suddenly living a real life again and her life in ireland you know she was very accomplished and academic and all this stuff but it was very much a rigid she was not alive in that life and and Stuart is like shocked because that's not the person he knows you know he, he knows his wife and she's distant from whatever and maybe he's that's what he's comfortable with because that's the kind of marriage that they have and it's sort of hollow and whatever and and suddenly there's this other person who's alive and passionate and fixated on this thing that happened long ago because it was the last moment that she w- and that's something that I can you know that I really relate to so that was where it was coming from for me you know how how do you really relate to it I don't know I just think I feel like um for for me in my life love is the most important thing always has been uh, which is really pathological by the way I wouldn't recommend it to anyone um but what it means is that when you have you know these romances these great moments in your life um that are overwhelming and passionate and stuff like that everything else sort of fades into the background and in a certain sense they're like they're like a series of of lights in a dark house you know and you can walk from light to light and the bits in between are 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 just sort of looking back at the light or looking at the next light at the end of the tunnel to to mix a metaphor you know interesting so is is claire stuck in that like limerence from when she was 18 19 years old. yeah i love that word limerent love right yeah absolutely um and also because what happened you know with her love affair that mean that it can never be resolved and that's i think the thing that makes it a a melodrama you know and germans are very famous for their melodrama and and it moves the drama beyond kind of our ordinary experience and makes it something really kind of extraordinary is that she has this great love affair but unlike you or i who you know we might have a heartbroken heart she can't it's kind of like a parent whose child disappears you know she can never grieve for for her love affair because she doesn't know how it ended and and that's that's the part that 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 sort of brings us into this it allows her to make it so important that she's willing to do anything uh, which makes it dramatic and interesting and it it compels her to do all sorts of things that maybe an ordinary person would would never do because it's 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 an impossible situation so she has to act in an impossible way yeah i mean how how are you how are you feeling in the wake of we don't we don't have to talk about this if you're not no you far away <laughs> uh, how, i mean how are how are you how are you feeling in the wake of the the breakup about claire's decisions you know, Do, does that change the way you feel about the story at all? It, yeah, you know, it, it, in a funny way, it does because I don't, yeah, like I, like I said, I don't want to kind of side with what's right or wrong, what Claire does. But when I was writing it, I guess I was very careful to to try and have Claire be this multifaceted person that her, you know, her actions are contradictory, like all of our actions. But yeah, when when you feel those intense feelings that uh, and and you have an experience that is almost otherworldly that is cinematic uh, even though it's real for you um then you know I, I you can't help but empathize with anything someone does to to recapture that feeling or to to chase that feeling because it feels like the truest thing in the world and you can rationalize that that's not a healthy way to live your life and that's a product of you get into psychology it's a product of insecure attachment or ambivalent attachment or something like that but you know what it feels 
more 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 real than than anything and um i was i was listening to a, a thing about cults uh recently and um you know they were talking about how um it was a talk like a lecture about uh why people do terrorist acts and the guys the guy resolved at the end he's sort of like i think his name is david gregory i could be wrong anyway he he at the end of it he sort of says um you know in a sense the people who are involved in these uh, like uh, Islamic jihadi movements or who are involved in extremist terrorist things, which kind of Claire kind of becomes involved in a little bit in the, in the drama. They're, they're more human than the rest of us because we're so civilized now that we have been very sensibly, so as not to be awful to one another, we strip back many of the instincts and the deep feelings that we had when we were lopping each other's heads off and, you know, stealing each other's sexual partners and all this kind of stuff um, for most of human history. And people who are living, people who give away uncertainty, the uncertainty of modern life and adopt a universal truth that explains everything, they're free to truly be alive um, in, in this Nietzschean sense. You know, they move beyond good and evil. And and that's what Claire is doing. And, it, you know, in a sense, it's mad. And in a sense, it's the most human thing you could possibly do. So I wanted to talk, I wanted to circle back to the auditioning process mm. um, because you couldn't find anybody to play Emil. Uh, and then you, you got you got James to yeah. do it. You know, and you were auditioning people with James O'Connor, right? I was, yeah, which is obviously there's there's some nepotism and there's conflict of interest going on there. But really what happened was we, we auditioned a whole bunch of people, some of whom were of German descent um, uh, and, you know, one or two of whom were, were German. And um, I couldn't find anyone. And I, I said to James, you know, I, I worked with James on a bunch of projects before then and since. And he is probably, you know, what, he's definitely one of the best maybe the best actor I've worked with and I said you know if you could do the accent I would give you the, the role in a second and he said well if I could do the accent I'd take it in a second and we kept saying this to each other over and over again and then eventually he said you know how about you know, I go away and I, I work on it because the thing is he's a, he's an excellent actor but the one thing he cannot do is, is any kind of accent and you do you know, so the, the thing I think he ultimately he found a way to do it where it's not really that he's doing such an accurate accent it's just that his acting is it's kind of like you know in uh, Team America he's his acting is so good <laughs> that even though it's it's not convincing it's believable in a different way and uh, because uh, the emotion is there and and he re- he's an astonishing actor and unfortunately he doesn't look you know like a leading man so he doesn't get that many of those kind of parts but he really he's heartbreaking to watch on stage and stuff like that so so to get he 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 really pulled that out and he worked he put in so much work because he was having to do this double job of trying to you know be a german and every everyone else in in the whole plate piece who, who who's playing a german character is german or has lived in germany for a, a long period of time or has german parents and all this kind of stuff and he didn't have any of that stuff so and he also had to sort of be this this character who's very unlike himself this torch-bearing freedom-fighting um charismatic sexy kind of guy not to demean james but that is not any of the things that he is <laughs> many fine qualities but those are not them and uh and, and i think he did an amazing a very and very believable thing in that and, and in a sense it, it it was a little bit easier because he's not playing a real person he's playing claire's version of a real person you know this idealized romanticized kind of young politically active um manic pixie dream boy or whatever and 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 and, and he did it perfectly you know so it was, it was wonderful to work with him and, and and you know it's such lovely stuff to say but really the actors were just 
just such a pleasure and they would come to me I remember Mia uh, Gallagher would, would she would come and she would like how about if I said this or I was thinking about this speech and what if I what if I said this and in fact she spotted things that didn't make sense in the plot you know because it's a mystery it, there were things that were there's contradictions and stuff and she was like but you know how would I know this and I was like oh my goodness and I would have to go in and rewrite it and so to have that level of uh, engagement was just incredible you know and I, I was saying I said it to people at the time it was the, like it's the best thing that I'd ever done and probably the best thing I will ever do because I can't imagine having that freedom to work like that again and we I spent we spent like a year on it you know in pre-production post-production um, which is crazy you know so um, so that's hopefully it shows in the final thing you know I think it does I, I was wondering what it's like to direct a close friend <laughs> um, especially one who's trained as a director yeah. and can like see through i mean didn't you learn a lot about directing yeah. from james o'connor i'm still learning about directing from him you know he's he 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 has a whole other thing and he's he actually teaches he teaches acting and stuff as well so it's you know ultimately it was an ensemble piece so that made it easier but i probably went i probably went too far the other way i probably went too hard on him you know um, I remember there was a scene we, one of the scenes towards the end I, I won't spoil it but there's a very dramatic scene at the, en- the end of Emile's arc and that was one of the first scenes that we rehearsed and I remember just stopping it and saying this isn't working you're going to have to go away and do this and come back and we come back in and sort of like going through it again and again and I was like I don't believe it I need you to I need you to find more and I need you to and, and, and it was sort of brutal in a way but it sort of had to because it's inevitable that even even if you even if you love your friend and you want to do the best you're going to be a little bit less serious about it because you know them and I sort of had to be like okay and James is actually you know probably my best friend in the world actually and so that was even so I just had to be a bit of a dick to him for the whole duration you know and it took us a while to get over it (laughs) you were saying that he had um this special challenge of having to act through an accent in a way Mm. that the rest of the cast didn't have to do yeah do you want to can we talk about a little bit how he developed that accent as an actor that traditionally hadn't done accent work before? Yeah, you know I I I don't I don't know other than that he went away and he listened to a lot of stuff and he also talked a lot with uh Dominic um Tarkowski who's the uh who's the younger Matthias and they 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 spent a lot of time talking about how German is versus how we imagine it is. So there's this kind of, like I mentioned earlier, this like Yavel German that we all have in our heads from watching Monty Python sketches and war movies and stuff like that. And and German is really very sing-song and it's much more, um, it, it's much more fruity than that. And it's much more kind of camp almost um, as a, a German. There's obviously more than one German accent, but German accents in general are not sort of staunch and like this. They're much more like this and up and down like this. And so he and Dominic worked on that together, I think, for a while. So a huge theme of the piece is surveillance culture Mm -hmm. Uh, and you've said in subsequent um, talks in the behind the scenes uh, pieces that you've done that there's a weirdly liberated feel to Berlin today relative to other western cities in how surveilled it is can Mm -hmm. can you expand on that yeah so so I think Look, and again, this is my impressions as an outsider, right? But uh, we we all live in a panopticon now. And the thing about a panopticon, Jeremy Bentham's famous idea of the prison where the guards could see everything that was going on, or they could at least, the prisoners could, couldn't know when they could see and when they couldn't see. So the idea, even in that original thing that Jeremy Bentham came up with in the 19th century, the 18th century, was that uh, it wasn't about observing all the time. It was about the, the person being observed, knowing that they might be observed all the time. 
So when the Stasi surveilled Germany, it was to that point in history that the greatest surveillance state. I mean, probably North Korea today would be, um, you know, a, a even more pronounced. But at the t- at the time, certainly in the West, anyway, most surveilled state uh, people's, you know, I think it was something like one in five Germans or East Germans were somehow being on the payroll or, or informing for the Stasi because they had to, or they would, you know, they would lose their jobs and all that stuff. So everyone knew at all times that essentially they, they, they really couldn't speak freely. And if they spoke freely, they knew that, yeah, I'm speaking freely. I'm saying things I shouldn't. But almost certainly someone knows and someone is listening. And even if they're not listening now, this conversation will be reported at some point in the future. And I really, really sincerely feel that we all live in that world now. You know, um, again, I was listening to a podcast just this morning, Chris Gethard's um, beautiful anonymous podcast. And he was talking to a, a woman scientist and they mentioned Skype sex or, you know, FaceTime fooling around with a distant partner, something I've done myself quite a bit recently. And uh, and they made this joke about, oh, when you're doing that, you always hope the NSA isn't watching or if they're watching that they don't, you know. And we all have that unconscious awareness all of the time that we're being surveilled. And it's my 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 feeling, at least, that in Berlin, maybe in the whole of Germany, because of what happened with the the Stasi, they've been a little bit inoculated. So they certainly have stronger laws against surveillance. Although, you know, we all know now with since Edward Snowden that, you know, the rule of law is pretty limited in these matters. But at least what they believe is that there's less surveillance. And certainly, again, because of the weird way in which Berlin is under-occupied as a city, there's all these kind of empty patches of land and all this kind of stuff. When you're there, you feel lighter, and I, I put that down to not being watched so much, you know, because um, you get the same feeling in India. You know, you're traveling around in uh, in rural India or Kerala or something or, or in other places where where you're away from the the modern world. And I, I, I yeah, I, I think that we unconsciously know, OK, somebody might be watching. Somebody might be listening. My, my, my smartphone is sitting on the table beside me right now. And because I've, you know, read interviews with Edward Snowden and, and Julian Assange and stuff I know that at any time the microphone and the smartphone can be turned on we're on Skype right now and Skype used to be peer-to-peer and Skype is now rooted through a central server for the entire purpose of surveillance uh, in fact I live in Ireland and famously it, was, it came out it was part of um, the Snowden leaks that all of the every all, all of the internet going through in and out of Ireland is copied by GCHQ the British Intelligence Service and saved so everything everything and um, and so we all know that. So I, I feel like Berlin is a little bit less like that. It's still like that. We still live in the 21st century. It's not a utopia. It's not free from any of that. But there's a little bit of a sense. And that small sense of freedom is incredibly liberating. And it makes, when I'm there, it makes me feel like we've given up so much for, you know, protection from terrorism or whatever the hell else, um, that it's that it's really not worth it. And and I, I was trying to get at that in the drama and you know yeah well just uh in terms of like the technical side of it that was very much there's there's a lot of stuff in it with subjectivity um whether we're hearing claire's perspective or reality whether we're hearing a recording or a memory and there's lots of subtle stuff that we did with sound design to try and make you feel that to try and convey that that paranoid feeling that i'm talking about you know that that you're being listened to um and 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 hopefully it's there you shouldn't really be aware of it on a conscious level but you should be you should feel it you should feel like you know there's someone standing behind you you know i got i got two more questions on my list cool number one do you still have that ryan gosling shrine in your apartment 
you know what just yesterday um a friend of mine visit, was visiting and she said what's the deal with this guy on the wall she's a hippie she doesn't know who ryan gosling is and i said well he's the most handsome man in the world why wouldn't he be on my wall um yeah i I have a kind of a kooky apartment it's even i live with a special effects makeup artist so it's we we have we now have a severed quite realistic severed arm sitting on our living room table and um like you do and it's full of things i guess i I have quite an adolescent existence if i'm honest david um it's it's how i roll you know uh, as a bachelor um got some hula hoops over in the corner a couple of top hats typewriter uh ukulele you can imagine the scene it's uh, so one last question, Gareth. Uh, is there any truth to the rumors that you're um, considering a film adaptation, a feature film adaptation of Wall in the Mind? You know, uh, in some perfect future where I get that opportunity, I would love to do a TV series, actually, rather than a film um, of, of, of it. You know, I haven't written it, and it's it would be one of those things. I'm trying to get into directing um, film and stuff. I, I, love, I love radio. I love listening to it. I love making it. Um, but at the end of the day the truth is the audience is not very large especially for radio drama there's a huge audience for narrative journalism say but radio drama you know there's radio drama revival and there's the truth and then there's all the other stuff and it's 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 growing but it's it's yeah i i i i want to i want to do stuff that people will see you know so um so i would like in the future to be writing for tv and directing for tv and movies and it would be i think it would make a really good tv series i do but you know who knows that's that's there's certainly no nothing in the pipeline you know but if 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 hollywood big time mac moneybags is listening to this and he's like well i got i got a bag of money for you kiddo i am more than more than happy to uh, to talk to him you know i'm i'm making I'm starting to make shorts and stuff over here now, so maybe one day. Well, Gareth, thank you so much for for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, it was it was really wonderful. Um, it's you know it pleases my ego no end to have somebody actually interested enough to, to talk <laughs> about this stuff. And I'm you know I'm really glad you enjoyed the series. I really appreciate it. That just about does it for this episode of Radio Drama Revival. But first, let me hit you with some credits. The Wall in the Mind was written, produced, and edited by Gareth Stack with sound recording by Colm Coyne and narration by Roger Gregg. It featured Jasmine Gleason and Mia Gallagher as Claire, Sebastian Connellan as Gunter, Janine Durkop as Nicole, James O'Connor as Emil, Dominic Turkowski and Sven Moritz as Matthias, Aidan Jordan as Stuart, and Helena Clark as Claire's mother. Music was by Ewan Henley, who can be found under the names Herv, H-E-R-V, and ZPG, and by Data Air Era bands Diandran and Sandow. It was funded by the Broadcast Authority of Ireland with a television license fee. You can find more of Gareth's work on his podcast, Dead Medium. Radio Drama Revival is produced by Matthew Boudreau, who would sooner eat his own shoe than rat out a friend to the Stasi. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreau, who, if I did run an intelligence service, and I'm not saying I do, would absolutely be the beating heart of my spy network. But I don't, so they wouldn't. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhound, whom we have not seen in many months. Have you seen him? Do you know of his whereabouts? Tell me. Tell me. Tell me. I'm David Reinstrom, and I'm telling you stories. Trust me. <laughs>